Drop your pants and grab your ankles. It's time for Grillo's Aftershock XL with your host, Steve Grillo. How the hell did you get a TV show? Welcome back to another episode of Grillo's Aftershock XL on the XL Network. We're getting all over the world. I'm kind of excited what's going on. We're going to get a whole new facelift here at Aftershock XL. We're going to, um, we're getting some new equipment, some new things that's going to make the show a little more professional, a little better. Hope everybody's family and friends are well. I'm still stuck here in Hell's Kitchen doing my thing, you know, continue to be strong and stay there for each other. And, you know, hopefully stuff, little things like this in my show uh, that, you know, my show can bring a little happiness to your day. And I hope for you and your family, too. Remember, spread the word. Please like and share. You can go to the Aftershock XL um, store and you can buy There's some really cool merch there and stuff like that. So uh, I just wanted to let you know, I appreciate everybody for the support and for the love. I, I'm always blessed to have a professional actor slash celebrity slash someone that I uh, love and admire that that is has a very strong presence in the movie and television realm and he's also a good friend and uh i've enjoyed his company in the past and it's uh, it's a pleasure to have him on the show everybody this is actor fred melmed um I, I everybody knows who you are fred it's like you're one of my favorite people because you're such a nice guy and you're just so awesome but i just love when it's just like all of a sudden i'm surprised and i'm like Fred's on TV, which happened <laughs> the other day when I was watching the new Disney Plus series, WandaVision, which I thought you did a great job at. You play Vision's boss. Right. Among so many other roles that you've had in your career. You, you, what, you have about 111 credits to, under your belt. Uh, yeah, but some of those are... Uh, um... In, within some of those, there are many shows. Like if I, I like, I have twenty Lady Dynamites that count as one credit. I was just watching that the other day, and you were so funny in that because you just so you're such a good manager to her, and you care about her so much, and she just like and she's just like makes your life just so difficult. But yet you're unrelenting, and you just keep get you don't give up on her. Well, that was kind of the idea of that show. Uh, you know, Maria is and was a dear friend of mine, and. Um, that character is very loose based on the person, um, her manager, who is, he is in real life, every bit is, uh, every bit is devoted. They're both completely devoted to one another. He's not quite uh, the putz that, that we made him out to be um, in the television show. Uh, but, the, but the part about them being kind of um, devoted, no matter what happens to one another, it was absolutely cold from real life. Um, so that was a you know uh, an interesting thing to observe in real life, and 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 he is actually my friend Bruce. His real name is Bruce Smith, and he's a lovely guy and actually a very good manager. Um, his ineptitude was part of the fun of the show. Yeah, no, it was fun to watch that. So uh, first, I want to I guess you get to the, the the bottom line. First, how are you doing? How are you coping with all this weird things that are going on? And and how is your family? Is everybody okay? Well, uh, I mean, to be frank, it's been uh, it's been a struggle. It's been difficult. Not it's been harder for members of my family than I think it has for me. Um, <clears throat> as I often explain, I started social distancing in around 1987, so it doesn't seem so odd to me. Um, but uh, you know, it's been it's been hard. Um, I you know I have a kind of funny life in that when I work. I'm off very early in the morning, and you know when you do movies and stuff, you're they're, they're very long days, and frequently they're on location, so I'm leaving Los Angeles where I live. Um, 
but then when I'm not working or when I'm home writing, which is the other thing that I do, um, <clears throat> it's very long hours, essentially sitting by myself, you know, in front of my computer. So it was not such a big shock to me, but <clears throat> my wife is very much used to going out and kids, of course, uh, are used to going to school. I have two 18 year old twin boys. So for them, it was a big, um, wow, a very big change. Now? I can't believe they're 18. That's they are, they are 18. Yeah, I know. It's wow. shocking when it happens. Especially when you when you're when you're right there, it's uh, it, you can't believe it. How you know, one minute you're you're fooling around with them, and you know it's Thomas the Tank Engine, and you're in the playground, and the next minute you're, it's 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 quite something. But they're eighteen, but one of them has has pretty severe autism, so his world is already quite limited, and he goes to a school here, um, not too far from where we live uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, and of course, like all other schools, um, it came to a screeching halt and they now do lessons over the computer, but that's hard for everybody, particularly hard for him. And my other son who graduated from high school last year was going to go to college, uh, this, this coming fall, yeah. uh, and elected instead, I mean, this, this last fall, I should say, uh, elected instead, um, to wait a year with us at home for which I'm extremely grateful. He's been terrific. Um, and he was a little young anyway. He was 17 when he graduated from high school. So he's going to go to college next fall. So he's been home with us and he's, he's been terrific. But as I say, it's been, um, it's been a big deal to deal with. And because I have a bunch of stuff um, that put me at very high risk, I have to be super, super careful about COVID. And I've already lost six friends, six people that I knew wow. well. So for me, it's a very, you know, for some people, I think it's much further away. It hasn't affected them personally so much, or they might've known somebody who got sick and they got better. It doesn't seem like much of a big deal. Yeah. Um, apparently, apparently I had it and really? um, I, I tested positive for the antibodies, but I don't remember being sick. Although, when did you test? When did you get a test? I got a test about two months ago, three months ago. And um, last January, I, I, but I, you know, I, I always get a chest cold once a year or some type of, you know, runny nose, soft throat, uh, aches and pains kind of thing. And mm -hmm. it's a year, you know, you, you, you're you sick for a week and you kind of just cope with it and then it's over and you're done. Um, so I don't remember being that severely sick. I remember being severely drunk, <laughs> being locked down and everything. Um, we had a bunch of friends that would get together for, you know, a Zoom chat and we'd all just be like we were at the bar except we were home. And but I don't remember being that sick. I've had... You know, a couple of my friends' parents pass away, and I've had friends that got it, and they they had a couple aches and pains, and then it was over. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, but yeah, it's very different. It's very it's very very idiosyncratic. It's you know, I have friends, many friends that have had it, and it's not been bad. You know, it's been like a really like having the flu. They get, they usually get feel very wiped out, like tired. I had something last January, which really wiped me out where I had a fever and I felt really weak and I had, and I had a, you know, I felt quite, quite tired and achy and it lasted for maybe 10 days or something like that. And then it was over and, and my wife had it, my kids had it, we all had it. And then I kind of assumed maybe that was it, but then my wife was tested for antibodies and she didn't have the antibodies. So I'm assuming that that wasn't it, but who, who the hell knows uh, in the final analysis. But yeah, it, it is. Uh, I've had so many friends pass away from it, and other friends get really sick. You know, I'm I'm 64. I'll be 65 in uh, a couple of months. So it may be because of the age I am that my friends are of the age where, if they have various health issues, um, yeah. it can be really bad for them. My parents are down in Florida, and my you know basically they're both 
you know, got a target on their forehead, considering, you know, my dad's got diabetes, my mom's got type A diabetes, she's got, you know, breathing issues and stuff like that. But they luckily, Knockwood um, and the community that they live in, they were able to get the vaccine right away. Oh, that's so, good. Where well, do they live? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that the vaccine is it supposed to prevent it or if you get it, it's supposed to help you. Well, um, both. Both. So you can go outside and if you were exposed to it, you're not getting at it or, you know, I'm it, I mean, it depends. It depends on the person. It's supposed it, with 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 the two that we the two vaccines that we now have available. There's two that have been passed. And as of this late this spring, there'll probably be three that you can get. Um, the third one is the Johnson and Johnson. But the two we have now, um, the Moderna and um, the Pfizer. Um, both of those are supposed to give you about nine. Once you get the second shot, it's two shots. Yeah. You get one shot and then you get another shot three weeks, approximately three weeks later. And once a week or two passes after that second shot, it's supposed to give you 95% uh, complete protection. In other words, you won't get sick at all. And for other people that may get sick, their, their symptoms will be, you know, appreciably uh, lighter, appreciably less. Yeah. So it's supposed to do both. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of been, you know, and funny that you say um, that, uh, you know, uh, not that it's funny you say this, but I, it's funny that there's a little bit of a, sort of my cousin has autism. He's about uh, 14 years old and he's completely happy with staying home. You know, like this is, this is, this is okay to him because he's, he has that uh, social anxiety with being around people and you know how like kids can be mean and pick on other kids. So he's sort of like, he's, he's happy being home and learning from home. And he's just okay with it. But I remember when he was probably like one or two and I'd be on the phone with my cousin, you know, this is his son. And he'd be like, it's weird. He, he, he focuses on something and he didn't know what it was. And it was, it was the motor to the refrigerator in the kitchen. Like it was like, he was that focused on it. And then, and then, you know, and he attested to being possibly because of all the vaccines that they got. I'm kind of opposed to vaccines in, in a way where I don't like getting the flu shot because I've never had to, I've never had that severity. I always think that possibly putting something into your body that you just don't need, like antibiotics, unless you really need them, is an issue. Do you think that any of those vaccines might have tested to any of the autism? Are you on that kind of uh, anti-vax situation? I would bet my life that vaccines have nothing to do with autism. I would bet my life right now. Okay. I'm completely, utterly convinced. Um, and all the scientific literature, which I take very seriously, there has never been any scientific evidence at all, at all, um, that vaccines have a causative relationship with autism. Um, it's true that certain people have have take vaccines and have reactions to vaccines, but when you look at it, I mean, this is I forgive my proselytizing, but when you look at it um, from the big picture, vaccines in general do so enormously much more good that you, it's like saying, are cars good to have? People get killed in cars. Well, they do, but the good that cars do so far outweighs the bad um, that we shouldn't talk about banning cars or saying, I don't want to ride in a car. Um, vaccines are absolutely essential to modern day health. And as, as we now know, they not only protect you as an individual, they also protect the community in which you live because there are many people whose immune systems are so compromised that they can't take vaccines. And by taking a vaccine yourself, you help those people because the community is not exposed um, to whatever the, 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 um, the germ is that we're concerned about. Now, you bring up another point, which is antibiotics, which is a totally different point. You're, in my estimation, you're completely right 
that antibiotics are overprescribed and often taken by people who really don't need them. And the effect that that gives, as you, as I guess you, as I'm sure you know, is that it makes uh, strains of bacterial infections resistant to antibiotics, which we don't want. That's bad. So undoubtedly, antibiotics are overused. Yeah, People I'm often. My mom, my mom was the type of person, and God bless her. You know, she, she, she's she's a type of she still kind of is. Is the fact that you know whatever comes out of the doctor's mouth is basically from God Himself. Kind of like where she's like, oh, the doctor just said. It. I was like, but mom, doctors don't always get things right. It's always good to thank God. I have a very good friend that's a doctor where I could always call him up and go, is this right or is this wrong? But you know, when I was a child, like if I had a cough or something like that, it was like, well, you, the answer was you take antibiotics. Right. 98% of colds, I'm, I'm, I'm making that number up, but a very high percentage of colds and respiratory infections that people get, the vast majority are viral. And when they're viral, antibiotics have absolutely no effect on them at all. The reason that they give antibiotics prophylactically, like if you have asthma, for example, I have asthma. Now, if somebody has um, a really bad situation with asthma where they have bronchitis, they'll have their lungs get fluid in them. And once the lungs have fluid in them, there's a significant chance that that fluid can become infected. So they will give you antibiotics as a preventative, prophylactically, to prevent you getting an infection. But it's no, there's no question that antibiotics have been overused, and they're having to always find new antibiotics because all the way nature works is really interesting. The way nature works, you know, why is the vaccine, uh, not the vaccine, why is the virus that we're talking about now, the, the COVID virus, uh, uh, why are we having all these new strains? That's a good question. The answer to that question is because the way nature works is there are constantly mutations in all living things. And whatever the mutation is that makes the thing live more easily, more viable, that mutation gets replicated. That's what that's the whole thing that Darwin figured out. So the reason the new the, the new virus, like the one that they discovered in England, and now there's a new one in California where I live, which is um, seems to be taking most of the cases. The reason that the, that the new ones keep popping up and keep becoming so uh, start covering everything like a blanket is because whatever ones are adapted best are the ones um, that survive and that knock out all the others that are weaker. So the same thing is true with infections. Um, bacterial infections are living things, believe it or not, and have a built-in desire, or desire is not the right word, but have a built-in um, structure where they want to replicate. That's the whole idea of life, is to keep life going. So um, they keep trying to outsmart the antibiotics. I mean, I'm talking as if they had a brain, they don't, but that's the way natural selection works. Yeah, so I, I, I get it's just it's just it's always like you just don't know. It's like I always equate a little bit of a doctor to almost like a car mechanic where you go in and your car is sick and they could tell you anything's wrong with it. And you, if you don't know your car well enough, you're going to go, OK, and just agree with whatever the mechanic says. Well, he, here's what here's what I think about that. You're absolutely right that doctors don't know everything and doctors make mistakes. Right. But just like the mechanic, like I have a Tesla. That is my car. Tesla is like a computer on wheels. Everything on it is electronic and is controlled by various computers, right? Now, the guy that I take, I mean, I can only take the car to Tesla because they're the only ones yeah. that fix it. But I can tell when something is wrong with it. I mean, it's obvious to me. And sometimes I have a pretty good idea of what it is. But the guy looking at it might be wrong also, but he's going to be a lot better informed than I am. So yeah. his chances of knowing are a lot better than mine. Same thing with a doctor. Yeah, Doctors are not always right, but who, who should I go to if not a doctor? Yeah. And, you know, uh, you can tell kind of how 
Okay, this is this gets into it. I know. Well, I want to, I want to talk about what you're working on. I know there's oh, okay. a very in depth conversation and, and very in intelligent. And I I appreciate what you're talking about because um I needed to hear about that vaccine analogy with the um the car and everything because I'm just you know I'm just always like skeptical when shit shit comes to that. But let, I'll, let's let's explain to everybody how we have a very close mutual friend that says hello and. Uh, says that they're doing very well they want you to know that they, they're going to reach out to you and say hello and catch up um but you know uh our mutual friend sort of like uh it was uh, it was kind of funny because we our first time that we ever met i was actually still doing interviews on the red carpet for howard stern show yeah yeah and it was at a serious man premiere which you did another awesome job like you want to like my friend mike star you always hit a home run every time you're on screen and and you have such a great stage presence, but you know it was just kind of funny because I remember you were doing the red carpet, and I was like, "Oh, our mutual friend," and you, and you were like, "Oh, so that's you." It was just kind of a fun way to like introduce each other, um, on, like on the red carpet for the, uh, you know, what was it? A very a serious man, which was also directed by the Cohen brothers, correct? Right, exactly. That was about twelve years ago that uh, that happened. Now you, you've stepped a, a, over a line here because now you are now part of the Marvel universe, which is a huge <laughs> thing for anybody. You know, I always say, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'll, I'll never consider I made it in the business until someone makes a, an action figure of me, which would probably never happen. But you know, like it would be kind of there. You go. Yeah, but, I have an I have an action figure. It looks like a big piece of clay, a big yeah. dumpy piece of clay. I'm sorry, yeah, I interrupted you. Working with what you call that '70s show. Um, I, I had um, I had mutual friends of ours. We're very good friends. Deborah, Deborah Joe Rupp. Yeah, she has. Um, it was a uh, it was a gay couple that used to come into the restaurant. That they were best friends, all three of them. Oh, with Deborah. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. said, "Stop it! Just stop it!" Like, <laughs> but she seems like she's fun to work with because. Uh, our mutual friends are sort of what, like you know put her on the phone with me and stuff because I was a big fan of that show. But you worked with like everybody. Who was who was your favorite director to work with? Gosh, that's a hard question. There's a lot that I love working with. Who gave you the uh, most leeway that they let you do what you needed to do? Well, actually, all the good ones do that, really. Yeah. And people are always surprised when I say that. For example, um, the Coen brothers, you know, when I, before I had worked with them, I was a, I was a fan of their movies. I love their movies. And I kind of, I traveled sort of a little bit in their orbit because I had gone to drama school um, with Fran McDormand and John Turturro and I knew John Goodman. So I, I kind of knew people that were in their, you know, in their retinue, in their stock company, but I didn't really know them very well. And um, I had auditioned for Barton Fink, which is now Christ 30 years ago, I think Barton Fink is a long time ago. I had auditioned for Barton Fink for the part part of the uh, the movie executive in in Barton Fink, if you remember that movie, um, which I didn't get. Another a, a, a wonderful actor did it, and he was nominated for an Oscar. He was terrific in it, but I I placed. I came in second, according to Ethan Cohen. But I was shocked because their movies look so carefully constructed. I was shocked when I actually worked with them that they give you so much uh, rope. They really give you a lot of freedom. They write very, very fully realized characters and situations. When you read a script of theirs, you get a very clear idea of the world that these characters live in and what the characters are like. And they like you to stick very specifically to the words that they write. They don't They don't like you to, I mean, they will allow you to improvise, but the improv improvisations rarely wind up in the movie. Um, so they like you to stick to their words. But as far as your performance goes, they give you a lot of leeway. And this was a big shock to me because their films look so 
carefully constructed. But they t they take the casting very seriously, and they don't cast things fast. They take it, they take even the small part. You'll notice in the Coen Brothers movies, even the small parts are so well cast. You know, you can see, um, like for example, you know, uh, um, uh, No Country for Old Men, which is yeah. one of their great movies in my my opinion. Anyway, um, there's a there's a there's a scene in that about a halfway through the movie where. Shigur, Anton Shigur, the bad guy in the movie, goes into a gas station, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and he has this interchange with a guy that runs the gas station, an actor called Gene Smith. Um, and it's so great. It's just this little scene where he threatens this guy, and the guy initially kind of pushes back a little bit, and then he realizes how serious it is, and he flips a coin. You, do you remember this scene? Yeah. Country? River so, died. Like, but he had that thing, that the cow pressure thing, where he just like put it to your that, forehead. The, 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 even that guy was, I, like, I couldn't forget that scene. There's only, there's only one scene in the movie, but he's so great. So they cast things very carefully, and then they kind of let the actors run. You know, which is what all the good directors do. Really good directors. Um, this surprises some people who don't know much about acting in movies, but really good directors don't tell you a whole lot. They have a gift for just saying a couple of things, and the things that they say somehow they have this ability where those few things that they say um, can light something up for you, can really make something uh, real. If you're, you know, if you're having a hard time. Yeah, I remember, and it's it's on one of those things that pops up on Facebook and stuff where it's like, you know, some of the mo most iconic ad-lib scenes. And and then going back to get my friend Mike Starr, like, I know Mikey very well, and I'm, I have, I'm a bundle of nervous energy. So I'm constantly, my hands are constantly moving, tapping something, you know, it's just an anxiety thing. And he's not like that. So when, like, the one time that he had enough of me tapping on something, he grabbed me and he made a face... Like he did, like when he was in this the van scene with Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey, where he was angry, like that's enough. And at that moment, I realized that Mikey was not—that wasn't part of the script. That was Mikey really being annoyed at both of them. <laughs> I was like, that's the face. And I just I, improv to me is like that's how I got any acting roles. Um, the first time I ever acted was in an off-Broadway play, and I had no interest in acting whatsoever, but. I was working on the Stern show. I really wasn't making much money. This off-Broadway play called Grandma Sylvia's Funeral um, contacted the show, and they were looking for some publicity, and they were willing to put me in there. But I took an acting class once in Hunter College just because um, I was a communications major, and the theater minor was the easiest way I can get through. So part of the, <laughs> part of the requirements were to take an acting class. And I, I had this wonderful teacher. He was a Greek guy. He was he was really an amazing acting coach. I wish I could find him again because I've seen him make, make things happen for people that didn't understand the scene. But you know how it goes. So I used to sit there in class and everybody in class was trying to be a working actor. And uh -huh. I felt so bad for him. I was like, they're complaining about their headshots, not getting auditions. I was like, man, I would hate to live that life. And then I, um, because they just seemed so miserable because they were always getting, they were working so hard and they wanted it so bad, but it was so hard. And so the, the, the field is so flooded with so many people that want to do the same thing. But so now I had this monologue I had to learn and I learned it and that was my final and I passed the class, but I was like, I'm done with this. So now Grandma Sylvia's was an interactive play and it was basically all improv. 
So basically, we had a couple of beats where you know we had to hit a couple of beats here and there, but you know maybe we had one. I had one thing on stage where I got to go up and had to recite lines. But I had you know I went down there with the attitude of I don't I don't give a shit. You know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. I don't care. And the only thing that got me the part was my ability to ad lib, which to me is just basic bullshitting, which I've got through most of my like you know college and high school careers <laughs> through everything. And mostly not getting my ass beat by my mother. So on um, the improv thing, that, then, of course, I fell in love with it. You know, I got a part on NYPD Blue and then I sort of my, my I sort of career took off like that. And it wasn't to like on the set of private parts because I was a PA on there where I really learned what it was like to be in the movie business and to study. Like I almost quit. Because I had this one PA that just didn't want me to be there and he made my life miserable. And it wasn't to one of my best friends. I was going to leave. I was like, I'm done with this shit. Fuck it. And one of my friends goes, so what's it like on a movie set? And I go, oh, it's such a pain in the ass. The lighting guy has got to come in and the electric's got to come in and then the gaffer's got to come in. And then they got, then they got to turn the stage around and this person and there's transportation and there's this and then the art department. And I went. Oh shit! I didn't know anybody did that shit two weeks ago. I'm learning, so I really started to analyze uh, Betty Thomas's script and how she shot the thing. And then I sort of really like, I was like, I don't want to be a PA. I want my own trailer, you know. And <laughs> I started to, uh, you know, actually uh, pursue it a little more. So, and that's where. So, how did that happen for you? What made you go? This is the way I want to go. Was it something that you've been wanting to do your whole life, or did you fall into it? No, it was a backdoor thing. It was weird, you know, because my my parents, I was around it my whole life because my father was a television producer. In the early days of TV, um, my father produced, my father worked with this guy called Nat Hyken. I grew up in New York. Um, and my father worked with this guy called Nat Hyken. And he worked on, uh, you're probably too young to remember the shows that my dad worked on. He worked on Car 54, Where Are You? Yeah, sure. Sergeant Bilko. Yeah. Do you remember those shows? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe it re- reruns. So well, my dad was. Fred Gwynn as well? No. Huh? Fred, was Fred Gwynn in Car 54? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Anybody that doesn't know that, younger people, that was Herman Munster from the Munsters? Right. Before the Munsters, Fred Gwynn uh, came to popularity. Fred Gwynn was a very interesting guy. I knew him well. Really? Harvard educated, brilliant guy, fantastic painter, uh, very kind, warm guy. But he, and he was, he uh, played. Um, uh, Muldoon on this on this show that my father produced, Car Fifty Four. Where are you? Um, so, and my parents uh, also had a house in Fire Island, which we went to in the summers and the weekends. And that was a very show busy crowd, also in Fire Island. So I was raised around it. But I remember, you know, when I was a kid, my father telling me that life for in show business was tough. Um, and, but I was always, you know, I, I never, cons- I always wanted to be a, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an archeologist. Wow. And then, I, and then I always wanted to be a writer. And when I got to college, I had, I had gone to high school with this guy, same high school guy, a couple of years older than me, he was my friend. And uh, he used to write these little crazy plays and then direct them at, at, at both in high school and college. And because I knew him, he asked me to be in the play that he had written when, when we got to college and I did, and I kind of liked it. And I went to Hampshire college, which is like, was, you know, very free kind of hippie atmosphere where you could kind of do whatever you wanted. Very little was required of you. So uh, people kept doing plays and asking me to be in them and I enjoyed it. I liked it, but I never thought I would do it for a living. And then the last year that I was there, my fourth year, 
um, these two women came to to where the college was. There's a whole bunch of five colleges all together that kind of cooperate in this in the the uh, Western Massachusetts, and um, uh, they started a company called Shakespeare and Company up in Western Massachusetts. A co company of people, all English speaking people, but from all over the world, from Canada, the United States, Great Britain, South Africa, other places where they spoke English. Um, to do mostly classical stuff, Shakespeare, Moliere, that kind of stuff. So uh, Tina Packer, the woman who started this company, asked me to join the company, which I did. And then I thought, well, you know, this is really is something that I that I think I do want to actually do uh, with my life. So I, it wasn't always an ambition of mine, although when I was a very young kid, I thought it would be really cool to be an actor. I used to love, <laughs> when I was a kid, I, we had black and white televisions. This is before the days of color television, believe it or not. My parents bought a new TV and they gave, they made the dumb mistake, incredibly dumb mistake of giving me this little black and white TV. That that was me. I had a little black and white TV. I used to watch Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days on it, you know. <laughs> and I would stay up all night, every night. I would stay up all night. Yeah. I was exhausted in school because I would love to stay up and watch movies and, you know, TV shows like really late into the early morning hours. And one of the shows that I loved was Tarzan, not shows, but movies, all the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan yeah, movies. Old Johnny Weissmuller. And I used to, I used to have this. Also, I always, all my life to the to this present day, I've always had trouble sleeping. I've always been a really bad sleeper. I, I, I sleep late and get up, you know, go to bed late and can't sleep unless I do that. And I used to pretend when I was a kid that I had this TV show where I would take a book and I would read it to the kids you know that would be the andy divine had a tv show on 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 disney whatever it was on the disney uh wonderful world of color where he would begin reading a story and then it would transition to a film so i used to pretend that i was like andy divine that i would get a book out of my bookshelf and read it and i would pretend i was reading it to kids other kids which is ex kind of exactly what i <laughs> wound up doing well, let's um, say Andy Kaufman sort of did the same thing when he was a kid. He always pretended there was another audience in a show and sort of improved a bunch of different howdy doody things and stuff. Were, were you uh, were you into um, superheroes when you were a kid? Was it Superman? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, I, I was. I, I originally started in the DC, um, you know, uh, world, like most people. I, I liked Superman, Batman, all those guys. And then a friend of mine, slightly older than me, said, oh, you should check out Marvel. You know, Marvel's really cool because the kids are, it's much more like real life. Yeah. So is this, so this is a big thing for you being in a part of the Marvel universe. Well, it, it's a big thing for anybody in the yeah. sense that, um, well, being you know, Marvel, a fan of Marvel and knowing that now you, you, you have a, a you know, a, a hook in there that you'll always be a part of it. That's like, uh, that's a pretty big thing. No. Yes, definitely. And I, and I must say, I really admire, uh, Kevin Feige because, he really wanted he, he wanted and continues to want to kind of shake things up you know they have the most successful kind of um broad blanket in show business that exists now you, you know marvel is an ironically enormous... you're black and white you've actually gone into black and white That's yeah cool. and, he, and you know he's taking a risk a significant risk because it's very different from anything else that's ever been created in the marvel in the mcu and also a lot of people that are marvel fans obviously are not old enough to remember a lot of the references uh, within the early uh, shows of uh, a WandaVision. 
So I admired very much the fact that he was doing, you know, something kind of risky. And, you know, I, I think it was a, I think it was noticeably enjoyable, especially um, for Lizzie Olson and Paul Bettany, who I got to be uh, friends with, you know, while making it, because it's so entirely different from anything they ever got to do under the usual uh, Marvel kind of conditions. You know, Paul Bettany is a terrific actor. Well, they both are wonderful actors. But I think a lot of people didn't realize how funny Paul Bettany is. You know, he's not, he's skilled at everything. He's very good at doing dramatic stuff. And he's really funny, too. Wow. Well, how well, long do you guys have to wait before he gets his makeup on? Like, I know, is he in full vision makeup while you're doing that? Or when he becomes like, a, like I, I know he switches back and forth because he can because he's vision. But I think there are certain I think there are certain elements of how things are done that I am not. I am I, I'm under penalty of death to reveal. I think that is one of them. Well, I don't okay. to reveal. When he's in black and white, is he in full vision makeup, or is it a different version of Vision's makeup? Again, I don't think I should. I, I think okay. I think I think all the magic tricks of how things are done, I should I should keep secret. I think. Yeah, we want to keep you in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I also not just for not just for my own welfare, but I think to keep I I, I uh, even though it it might be interesting. I think it's more interesting to not know how certain things are done. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Now, does this kick open a door for you now? Uh, are you like, I'm sure everybody's very happy with your work. Are you able to maybe finagle your way into other Marvel movies because of this now? Uh, we shall see. You know, there may be a fat, uh, overweight, kind of like rabbinical superhero in the future. You never know. <laughs> Uh, I think they uh, called him the Hebrew Hammer. It was on. Uh... Yes, I remember that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I hope so. It would. I would certainly enjoy it. Uh, now, how did it go down? Like, wh wh when did you shoot that? By the way, obviously, was it like last year? Yeah, it was about a. It was a, like last September, October, November in there. So it, it was. It was during COVID or not during COVID? Oh no, it was long before COVID. But then okay. COVID came. Yeah, COVID came in the middle of what the shooting schedule was. So they're completely locked down out there. The, the industry is not taping anything. No, there are people. There are people working and uh, attempting to work. Um, the problem is, I mean, the, the unions have have made a real effort um, to create protocols that make it safe for people. Um, you know, they've struggled to do that because people want to work and everybody wants the business to go on. The problem is, at least from my perspective, that they keep they keep on being these breaches where. Um, uh, somebody gets COVID, and then it's very hard because you know, you, if you, for example, if you if you're not if you're working like in Los Angeles where I live and work most of the time, you know, crewmen and actors and everything they go home to their families. They're not living in a bubble, so uh, it's very hard to keep people under those circumstances, uh, you know, safe and and free from from being exposed. So what keeps happening is they keep starting up various projects. Uh, and people wind up uh, getting sick. And when somebody gets sick on a set, they then have to close the whole set. Yeah. Well, I, 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 Tom Cruise uh, tirade. Yeah. People, um, he's like, you know, people are trying to make a living. I kind of understood what he said. And he's a producer and he's, you know, responsible for production as well as being an actor in front of the camera. So, you know, I kind of understood why he kind of threw a fit. Yeah. And especially with a big budget movie like his movies are. Um, people are looking to them for kind of leadership to see that things can go on as they have. I have a friend, uh, Michaela Watkins, a dear friend of mine, who is one of the stars of a show called The Unicorn, uh, which is shot on the Paramount lot here in, in Hollywood, where, where, I, where I am. And um, 
her and you know Paramount is a huge studio. Been there. That that was that. Yeah, you. I know you in your in your other life. Uh, you. I'm sure you went there several times. Yeah. Um, so Paramount is a big place with a lot of different stages. She told me they were the only show working. All the others in the last month or so, or maybe month and a half, had been shut down because the people kept getting sick. Well, I think the sports teams too, you know, like all of a sudden they're canceling a basketball game because, you know, the other team got sick or somebody on the team got sick or four or five guys. It's like, how do you tell like, a, you know, a 22 year old millionaire that you can't go out? Well, I mean, it's very, very tough. That's the problem. You know, I I don't know if this is really true, but I, I read somewhere that if everybody just stayed in their house for like four or five weeks and didn't go out, didn't go to, you know, any anywhere, but literally just stayed at home, that the virus would be pretty much over. We I don't know if that's really true, but I, I read that. We did that already. I, you know, I, I was, I was, I was. Well, but not everybody kept to it. That's the point. Well, I, I, well, I can, I, I can say that um, because I was an essential worker. You know, on top of doing this, um, I was doing a beer and liquor rep, and uh, we were absolutely essential, no doubt about it. Or definitely, you know. So you know, I had to be out there, but I was very careful as far as the mask and. And sanitizing and but you know part of what of my route was down on avenue d and like you know you know like by uh houston street and stuff and um they there's a projects right there they didn't care they were in the streets having parties and they had radios out and chairs and they were all sitting around you know they didn't uh they didn't really follow what was going on where if you went any other neighborhood in new york there was a ghost town but um, anything from ever you see and D, people just were out there, no mess, nothing. You know, I made sure that I I did my due diligence on my end, but they, you know, they were out there every day, and you know, it's like it's just shit like that. That you're right. If it, they don't know lock themselves down, it's not going to go away. But I was in New York, it was eighty to eighty five percent people locked down. You know. No, I know, I know. And where I live in L.A., you can't. I mean, we it's we're having a nightmare here now. It's unbelievable now. I mean, if you have a heart attack, uh, you're in bad shape. You can't get into a hospital. There's eight-hour waits, people sitting in ambulances with with strokes and heart attacks. Wow. Um, it's a nightmare. You know what? New York, everybody's on top of each other. L.A., it's kind of spread out. You're all in cars. There's very little con physical. You can go around and get shit done without – you can have limited physical contact. You know, it's like – You're right. But way on a bus or in a bar, you know, like – you're right, but it's we had a strange thing here, which was um, our governor, who's a good governor, Newsom, was very uh, sort of proactive at first. So we had the first lockdown, the first effective lockdown in the country long before this New York, but people tired of it. And then there was this whole backlash thing of, oh, it's not really that bad, and I want to go back to work, and it's a, it's people are over overblowing how dangerous it is and stuff like that. So there was this big sort of backlash thing that happened here. And also, you know, California is not to paint it with too broad a brush, but is the land of, you know, I want what I want and I want it now. And don't you fucking tell me what I can do. Yeah. It's a lot of that kind of, um, you know, th thought in California. And you had to put the hammer down and just shut everybody up and shut them in their house. Well, still, I mean, I, I, where we live, we live in a, 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 a suburb, um, in the in what's called uh, the San Fernando Valley, to the north of most of Los Angeles, a huge, huge uh, suburb. Um, and uh, every time I drive around or even walk around, I go for walks with my kids, you know, just to get out of the house. You see people 
a significant number of people with no masks. When it was Christmas time and, and, and Hanukkah time, I saw people all the time going to other people's houses with carrying, you know, cakes and food yeah. that they had and shit like that. And pe people just don't really want to believe it or don't believe that it's uh, serious or don't believe it applies to them. Now, the, the, there's something else that, uh, that, uh, that I know we, we, we went far afield talking about vaccines, but we live in this time where people think that anyone who has a megaphone, anyone who has a Twitter account, anyone who has a TV show, anyone who has anything where they can be heard by the public, that all voices are equally trustable, that there's no such thing as an authoritative voice. That's not true. If you read something in the New York Times, you can be pretty sure that they've checked it very carefully. But people have been led to believe that there are conspiracies, that um, everybody, there's no authoritative truth. And, and, and that's why we have this strange world that we're living in where there, there are camps convinced um, of things that there's no factual evidence to prove at all. I know. I, I, it's funny. Um, I'm not, a, I, I have friends that are conspiracy theorists and there are, uh, I don't believe everything that I read in the paper or what people say. I think there is some other things, but if I can pull it up real quick, and I'm obviously not going to give my friend's name, but he did post something yesterday where, you know, if, if it was true, you know, it'd, it'd be pretty terrifying. And this was supposed to happen today. So um, let me. OK. Where is it? Give me one second, buddy. OK, is it? Um, this is uh, directly from the military. Yes, I have famous friends who get intel. The last four years are all coming down to the next few weeks. According to the latest schedule, everything will be exposed sometime between Sunday afternoon and Monday night. The timer has been set for those two particular days. During this time, the uh, emergency broadcasting system will be activated. President Trump will send out a message. My fellow Americans, the storm is upon us. There will be seven uh, presidential text messages from him via Air Force One. One following the message, the storm is upon us, that puts us under full global martial law. Via the uh, EBS on authorized devices, there will be an eight-hour video played three times a day for 10 days straight with video confessions of high-profile elite individuals being exposed for their crimes against humanity at their military tribunals. While the movie is being played, five, uh, um, a half a million people plus will be taken down worldwide. This repetitive movie will be extremely painful for most of us because it involves people we thought we could trust committing unthinkable crimes. It goes on and on and on, but like when, when is it supposed to happen? That um that the emergency broadcast system is going to be activated, and that uh, President yeah, Trump. What does it say? It's excuse me. When is this supposed it's, to happen? It's today or tomorrow. <laughs> so like like I don't subscribe to those kind of crazy uh, conspiracy theories. Like like that's a whole nother level of extreme. But um, it's just interesting how it can get to that level, you know, real quick. But I'm always cautious to, you know, think about what I'm reading and, and why are they putting it in there? And, you know, just I try to be cautious, not crazy, you know. Well, here's a question for you. Why do you think people would rather believe that everything is being controlled, that there is a conspiracy, that there's a massive secret effort? Why do you think people would rather believe that? Because they don't have answers. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think with social media now, you know, I remember like reading there was like the Post, the Times, the Daily News, and you know, Newsday, whatever. There wasn't no social media platform where people could go on and really discuss this. You talked about it on the phone with one friend, you know. Right. So I think social media has opened up a can of worms. But um, 
So it's almost time to wrap it up because I, I try to keep it uh, within an hour. So what was the first big break? What was your big, uh, oh, wow, I made it in this business? Um, in 1986 or 87, um, I did a film uh, with Woody Allen, the first of seven films that I did with Woody Allen um, called Hannah and Her Sisters. And I had a small part in that. I played a doctor, but it was a scene where he thought he was going to die from brain cancer. So people remembered it. Yeah. So um, my after the film came out, um, my agent called me up and said, go buy Mad Magazine. <laughs> so I ran down to the newsstead and bought Mad Magazine. And there in Mad Magazine was a picture of me, not a picture, a caricature of me with talking to Woody Allen in one of the frames of their parody of Hannah and Her Sisters. I got to, I got to, uh, that's one of the biggest stories of my life is they did a parody of Howard in Mad Magazine and they did a little drawing of me with a potato and a turban because he used to call me Gunga Din because I used to bring him water all the time. So like it was, uh, is that, that's the scene right there? Oh, uh, the scene with me and Woody Allen, you mean? Yeah. That's not the scene, but it's a scene right. like that where I'm, 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 a, I'm a doctor. I'm sitting behind a desk and I talk to him anyway. So when I saw that, uh, that thing in man, I thought, wow, I really made it in show business. But as far as people uh, recognizing me, um, a serious man, which is relatively recent, that's 12 years ago, um, that put that put me on the map in a kind of, kind of a different level. You know, that made me um, people really know who I was. It was it was a, it was a great scene where um, our mutual friend used to bring it up, you know, like um Oh, I can't, I, I'm having a brain fart right now. Where it's basically like, you have to leave the house. What was that like? You know, it, it, this is. Oh yeah. yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a scene in a in a diner. Me and I don't want to spoil the film for people that might not have seen it. Yeah. But uh, the idea of the film is, I, I'm the villain in that film. Yeah. It's kind of particularly unusual, kind of creepy villain whose whole method is that he sort of hypnotizes people with this very soothing massaging kind of manner yeah, that he has with his voice you don't live here anymore like right so so it's it, it's particularly sort of nasty and icky but he does it in this sort of velvet glovey way yeah um, that that was uh, interestingly that was the first scene that we shot of the whole movie it was supposed to take place at a at a restaurant called embers which is a in minneapolis where the cones are actually from was a chain of of kind of mid-level kind of Denny's-ish restaurants that people used to go to. What was to. the character's name? Not yours, the other character? Uh, Larry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you have to build that. And yeah. It was funny. We just like, it was something that we always said. We always like used that line back and forth. It was very funny. Well, when I, I met um, uh, Joel's, Joel and Fran McDormand have a son, Pedro, who he's now in his 20s, but then he was a young teenager. And he used to run around the house doing imitations of me. I was extremely flattered by his doing imitations of me. You know, it was very nice. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, well, uh, what's what's was that a serious man? That's that's your favorite movie. That's the one that sort of like um, put you more. Like, did you have, did you enjoy the like give a little like backlight uh, story to the Marvel thing because that's really hot right now. That's one of the biggest trending shows on the internet, the biggest channel on the internet. It just surpassed Netflix. So there's a lot of traffic. Oh, surpassed Netflix. Wow. They surpassed Netflix. After like six months or whatever it is, it's not not been very long. Yeah. Well, um, it was a big thrill for me because it's such a giant behemoth, and I have many friends, um, you know, who are are part of it uh, already. Um, but it was a great, you know, a great uh, thrill to be a part of it. Um, and uh, you know, I I hope I certainly hope that my presence in some form or other continues. Um, and it's interesting 
for somebody to take, as I said, the degree of risks that I think uh, uh, are being taken by Kevin Feige and other people too, um, uh, to, to continue to have it develop and be and be and be really interesting. Um, I'll tell you quickly a story about Robert Downey Jr. I was a counselor in a camp called Stage Door Manor when I was in drama school. I went to Yale Drama School. And while I was there, I worked in this theater camp called Stage Door Manor. And many people that went on to stardom were, were campers at this camp, including Robert Downey Jr. And um, years after that, his first big movie was a film directed by James Toback um, called The Pickup Artist with him and Molly Ringwald. And I was also in that film. So when we were doing the film together, and he, he had just gotten off. He had, was, he had did like a half a season on Saturday Night Live. People don't remember that about him. Oh, I remember it. It was horrible. <laughs> he, was, he was off it. When and, that Anthony Michael Hall. Right. This movie was kind of, kind of a big opportunity for him, this movie called The Pickup Artist. So while we were doing it, he was kind of nervous and he was, you know, he was, but he, he, he was very good in it, but he was a little worried. And I said, I said to him, you know, let me tell you something. I, I have a real feeling that you're going to be a really big star. And he said, really, you really think that? I said, yes, I just, I mean, I just have this conviction. You have this quality that I think is really great. And I just think you're going to be a giant star. And he was so effusive and so pleased because he, you know, we knew each other and all that. He was so so every Christmas, I send him a card saying, hang in there, Robert. I know it's going to happen for you. I <laughs> now, you know, he definitely watched that show. He's like the prince of the Marvel Universe. And uh, does he reach out and go, wow, Fred, so welcome to the family. Or could you use that as an example? Like, Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Say, Yo, all right, so I got I got this far. How can we go a little further? Come on. RD, uh, was it, what do they call him? RD... Donnie, yeah, RDJ, whatever. Um, I, th I think honestly, he's—I mean—he's had a terrific run, but he said publicly that he's kind of had—you know—I think he's had—he's had his fill of it. I think I don't—I don't know personally. Oh well, yeah, they have a big pay paycheck or funny. It's really hard to turn it down. But they're talking about because he's, you know, John Favreau is Mr. Mandalorian now, and he's Mr. Disney Plus, and there's a character probably in the next season that was uh, not introduced in the regular Star Wars universe, but inside the. The Rebels and the cartoon series, and it was uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn, who they mentioned in one of the episodes, and now there's talk about him playing that, because obviously him and Favreau are like this, so um, it would be interesting for him to come into it. I, I think it should be uh, John Hamm or Justin Cum uh, Cumberbatch. What's his first name? Walton Cumberbatch? Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, hold on. <laughs> I'll think of it. Uh, I'm a Star Wars geek, so it's like... Uh, but uh, he might be coming into the Benedict, Benedict Yeah, but I can't tell you how happy I am. Uh, you know, obviously, I I know you're going to be, you know, uh, from years to come, you're still going to be in all these series and movies. I hope that Marvel Universe is smart enough to bring you into more things. I'd like to see you on The Mandalorian. That would be great. I would love that. I would. That would be a great, uh, great joy for me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Star Wars uh, geek myself. Did you so, watch The Mandalorian? You know, honestly, I just started. I okay. Just, well, I, I don't know. I'm not ruining anything. I'm not, I don't like giving spoilers, but um, uh, obviously you must have already got the hype that that the last episode of this season is something huge happens. Yes, I heard that. Groundbreaking, and it's pretty amazing. I, I famously 
gave away a spoiler while I worked on the Howard Stern. Oh, show. you can't do that. No, no. Well, this is this is this is back. This is you know I can I can say it now, but I really I don't know why because growing up in Brooklyn, I'm surprised I never really got into the Alien franchise, but all my friends did. I just like so I didn't understand the big thing about the one guy being a robot. So they did that new Alien uh, relaunch, probably probably in like '95 or whatever. Mm-hmm. 96 because I was still there. My cat, cut it out. Sorry, my cat's in a bag. So it was, and I didn't know it was a big deal that Winona Ryder was a robot. And I hated the movie because I, I went to go see it. So I reviewed it the Friday before it came out, the Thursday before it came out on, on the oh, show. You it? Oh, no. I was like, yeah, and it was really stupid. And it turns out Winona Ryder is a fucking robot. And they were like, oh, what did you say that for? I can't believe that. You just ruined the movie. Everybody started calling up, screaming at me. Then I had to go to the office, and the people were screaming at me. And I got on the street, and people were screaming at me. Like, So I learned real quick not to, like, ruin spoilers. Like, Because I always got my ass beat. People were generally, I've been waiting for this movie to come out for a year and a half, and you just fucking ruined it. You know? So, and, and especially it's New York, you know? I had to watch my back for a good week. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything you need to plug like your Twitter or Facebook account that you'd like to get out there? Uh, I don't do Twitter, but I have some interesting uh, films that'll be opening in the next uh, year. Um, one called together together, which I think everybody will enjoy. Um, another one. Uh, let's see. Are they coming uh, on Netflix? Uh, they, I don't know where, where they will be yet. Cause they've just well, been. Another one called, uh, Please let me know. I would love to help out. Maybe, yeah. And I'll tell you, and on some other interesting things too, there's a guy that I've been collaborating with for years. Um, we're about to do our, our fourth film together, a guy called S. Craig Zoller, wonderful writer, director, very interesting guy. And I'll have a film, another film where I star opposite Vince Vaughn. Uh, that will be probably about a year and a half, maybe two wow. years from now. That's, uh, it's crazy that, they, you know, you can't, everybody's watching everything from home. Um, I miss going to a movie theater, I can tell you that. And it's, it's good that you have those couple of things in the bank before everything went down. And, you know, if, uh, if you do get anything, uh, you know, I hope it's, you know, a safe set and everything like that. And are, are you actively auditioning right now? Is it something that's um, going I've, to- I've turned down five things in the last <laughs> month. Oh, wow. One of them was a David O. Russell movie, big movie with David O. Russell. One was a villain part uh, opposite John Hamm, who was a friend. Uh, things I really regret having to turn I mean, down. I've but... been counseled by my doctor not to set foot on a set until I'm vaccinated. Okay. So I have to wait. That's well, just the way it is. Vaccinated soon, man. We need more of Fred out there in, in, uh, in, uh, in the universe. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that. And uh, stay in touch. With, when those new things come out, you, you know, you can come on and... Uh, Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm getting a green screen in here. It's going to be looking a lot different. And uh, I'm going to make it more of a professional situation. And, you know, the numbers are going up every week. Again, we're on, uh, you know, there's F-Sharp Tax Management, Sterling Assault, who helps me out. They got to do all my jewelry. There's the Aftershock wow. XL ring. My buddy Alfie at Sterling Assault mentioned Grillo's Aftershock XL, and you will get 10% discount. He's done those rings as well. And F-Sharp Tax Management, Richard Richard at Frenzy, if you want to get he, – he's actually one of the best tax attorney, tax people I've ever got. He specializes in people in the entertainment business. He saved my ass a couple of times. And then just, don't forget about uh, – yeah, definitely saved my ass. And you then, want to be doing that show from jail. No good. Yeah, no, no, no. Bright shot, you know, the best LED light in the business. But you, know, you can sub- subscribe um, uh, for Aftershock Excel. Oh, there's the new uh, – what, that's um, that, it's an air purifying system for sets right there. Really? Yeah, it, it goes through UV light 
and uh, it goes through all these different chambers and it comes out like 99.9% pure. I and, uh, it, yeah, it, it could, it, it could uh, clear up a room. There's a lot of details. We're waiting for just the scientific information to come back before we can actually guarantee what it does. But it basically, it'll go all the, the air, the air blowing in will come in through one end and blow out the other and it'll blow out pure air. There's some big news. We're just, it's, it's being tested in a, in a laboratory by people that know what they're doing. And once they have uh, the laboratories like thumbs up, uh, there's some big news coming out of that. It'll make your life on set a lot easier. Great. I look forward to that. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and also on um, YouTube. And there's Grillo, uh, Instagram, uh, Grillo's at the Shock XL, or Grillo, uh, Grillo Vader. And Twitter, I'm at Steve Gorilla. So you can find me there. Fred, thank you so much. You know, give my love Pleasure. to your family, please. And, uh, you know, stay strong. We'll get through this soon enough. Thank you. You too. And everybody listening, thank you for your support. Everybody, One Division, Disney Plus. You can't miss Fred. He's awesome. Thank you.